If you brought a Bible with you this morning, how about if you open it up to uh, the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you're going to find them in the racks in front of you, or uh, you can follow along up on the screen. It'll be up there as well. And if you don't own a Bible, we have free ones for you. Uh, If you don't own your own copy of God's Word, they're in the back on the table. And when you leave this morning, feel free to take one with you when you leave. It's our gift to you. We really want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. Have your own copy, especially here at Christmas time, so you can study the Christmas story. Um, I'm going to pray with you in just a minute, but guys, just a quick heads up for you. We finished um, a men's study this last week, Wednesday. It was a 12-week study. Won't be starting another one until January, but this coming Wednesday, we have a one-night-only event, and it's at 7 o'clock, and... Um, it's a presentation by Amir Sarfati, and Amir is a um, Jewish man who is a believer in Christ and lives in Israel. He is an uh, Air Force fighter pilot for the Israeli Air Force, and he is uh, the past mayor of Jericho. So here's the reason that we're sharing this. Um, he was involved in the battle with um, the Israeli Air Force against Hamas this last summer, and especially as it relates to the Gaza Strip. My sister attends church in San Diego at David Jeremiah's church, and Amir was there making a presentation in September, and his presentation is based on what's going to happen in last days, especially as it relates to the battle of Gog and Magog, as we studied Ezekiel 38 a few weeks ago. You might remember that. So Amir has this presentation, and it's for the guys on Wednesday night, this coming Wednesday night, at 7 o'clock if you're interested in being there, guys. Uh, It'll be up here in the auditorium. It's long. It's about 52 minutes, so be prepared for that. So just a heads up, and feel free to invite friends if you'd like to do that. Well, we're going to turn our attention to Luke, and uh, let's pray before we do that. Father, we uh, take this moment to recognize what we're about to do would fall far short if it was not for the presence of your Holy Spirit in this auditorium. And we invite you to be our teacher and our guide that you would cause us to see things we can't see on our own. In the midst of this week behind us that has been moving very fast pace, and the week ahead of us, which will also move at a fast pace, we ask that you would take this time right now through the working of your Holy Spirit and cause us to be stunned by the majesty of what you have orchestrated for us. Help us, Father, to encounter you set aside all of our cares and allow us to focus on you through the study of your word. We will ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Last week, um, we began this journey towards Christmas, kind of an overview of the thing we're calling the promise. This, This is part one of the promise this morning, that God makes promises to us. And we call them by the word prophecy. You see promises in the scripture Uh, through prophecies of things that God says he's going to do. The reason I wanted to look at this with you specifically leading up to Christmas is these things give us reason to be absolutely ecstatic, not just for salvation if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but because of the things that God promises to us that he is to us and that he will do for us. So last week we looked at Isaiah 9 verse 6 in which God says this about himself, I am a wonderful counselor. I am the mighty God. I am the everlasting Father. I am the Prince of Peace. 
Well, we want him to be all those things to us. So it's really important that we understand the meaning behind those names. And we, we did that a little bit last week. Today you're going to see some more names come out. This is all in relation to this really big question. How can we know today in 2014 that Jesus is actually the one? How do we know for sure that he's actually the one that all of Scripture points to? And so we study this this morning to look at these prophecies about the one that was promised to come. So God's got some promises to us, and what we understand about his promises is that our God can afford to be very, very precise. And here's why because he knows the end from the beginning. He does, he knows everything. He knows the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning. Time is irrelevant to him. So he can afford to be very precise and give great detail in Scripture. Our God indeed knows the end from the beginning. We get a glimpse of that in Luke chapter 2. And that's why I want to take you there this morning, perhaps to look at a a new lens on Luke chapter 2 in the Christmas story. So would you go there with me? Here's the background. Mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, are on their way to Jerusalem. They're going to carry out this function of dedicating Jesus, who's only 40 days old at this point. But before we get there, Luke gives us a little detail of things that are customary to his day and age. It says this in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, when eight days had passed, meaning since his birth, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So Jesus is eight days old. His mom and dad are going to take him to the local synagogue in Bethlehem. They always did this. The the Romans did this on the ninth day. The Greeks did it on the seventh day. The Jews carried out circumcision on the eighth day. They would go find a local priest and, and take the baby to the synagogue and have the circumcision ceremony carried out. And we're told specifically in verse 21, he's named on that day. His name is called Jesus. Now, what's remarkable about that is as parents, we get the privilege of naming our children. And it's happened for generations. It's not unique to our generation. I got to choose the names of my children along with my wife. We got to say what our kids' names were going to be. They didn't get a say in it. But Mary and Joseph get no say in it. They were told by the angel Gabriel, this is what his name's going to be. You're going to use this name. So we should understand this name because this is a name that God said is going to be his name. We use the name Jesus because that's familiar to us in English. In, in Greek, in the Greek world, if you were living at that time, you wouldn't have called Jesus Jesus. You would have said Iesus, but Iesus is the Greek pronunciation of the Hebrew name Yeshua. So Yeshua is important to understand in combination with Iesus because Yeshua is really a derivative of the name Joshua. Uh, Joshua means salvation is from God, but Yeshua is unique in this sense. God's name in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, was always abbreviated by the initials Y-H-W-H because they wouldn't pronounce the name of God. It's too holy to pronounce, so they wouldn't say Yehovah. They would put Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H. And Y-H-V-H put in combination with Yahshua, salvation is from God, you get the name Yahashua. So when you saw Jesus in a Hebrew form, they would have said, there, there is Yahashua, Yahshua. So salvation is from God. That's Jesus' name. So if you're in public this week and and you hear somebody say, Jesus Christ, you can say, yes, he is. Try that. See if a little grenade goes off, okay? (laughs) What are you talking about? 
It's true. That's his name. So you get people around you proclaiming his name all the time, right? They're not proclaiming it in the way that the Bible says. But So here's, here's a little thing for you to understand as you move forward in Jesus' name in this passage. Look with me on the screen. You'll see Jesus is his human name in Greek or Yeshua in Hebrew. Christ is his official title. It's not his last name. Jesus the Christ, meaning the Messiah or the Mashiach. So Christ is his official title. Emmanuel describes who he is or what he is, meaning God with us. The angels call him the Son of God. And you see that throughout the Bible. When Jesus runs into or encounters demons, the first thing they say, holy angels or fallen angels all recognize him by Son of God. Why are you here? That's what the fallen angels say to him. So that's what the angels call him, Son of God. So with that in mind, let's move forward into this story. Verse 22 says this, And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, for every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. So they're going up to Jerusalem. That should get your attention if you know anything about the geography of Israel. Bethlehem sits at sea level higher than Jerusalem. So why does Dr. Luke say they're going up to Jerusalem? It should say they're going down to Jerusalem. Well, in the ancient world, nothing is higher spiritually than the city of Jerusalem. So they would speak of it with honor and with favor and saying they're going up to it because in their mind, they're always ascending to God's. But keep that in your mind as you move forward here. Verse 22 says they're going to do something. They're going to present him to the Lord. Now, there's a baby dedication about to take place. We do baby dedications here at New Hope. Parents bring their children up and present them to the Lord. Mary and Joseph are doing the exact same thing. But there's a redemption that's going to take place because God says the firstborn belongs to me. You have to buy him back. Now, let me explain this to you. It's very ancient. It comes from the book of Numbers. Chapter 18 says this in verse 15, Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem, verse 16, as to their redemption price, from a month old you shall redeem them by your valuation, five shekels in silver. God's got a ransom price. How much is that? That's a hundred bucks. A hundred dollars in pure silver. What's going on there? Does God need money? No. Okay, so why is he telling them to do this? Because he wants them to remember, this is mine. I gave it to you. This one belongs to me. And so there's this dedication ceremony going on. So typically the parents were dressed in pure white clothing, and they're beginning this ascent towards Jerusalem. Now when they get to the temple, something distinct takes place that's unique in this setting. When the book of Psalms was written, David wrote various songs. Some of them are called the Psalms of Ascent. So that when an individual came to the temple and they began climbing the steps of the temple, putting their feet on each new level of steps, they would begin singing a song to God, a psalm of ascent. So Mary and Joseph, being honorable Jews, would begin singing these praises to God. So picture this, dressed in white, carrying Behavi Yahashua, stepping up each step, going closer and ascending up to the temple of God. That's all part of the imagery going behind this setting here. So the talk is not of going to the temple, but ascending up to the temple. 
So we have this image here in verse 24. It says, and to offer. That's a secondary component. They're to offer a sacrifice, a pair of turtle doves. Why? Because they're so poor. A normal family was supposed to bring a yearling lamb. But if you're really, really poor, you're allowed to spend 20 cents, two dimes, and buy two turtle doves because that's all they have. Verse 25 says this, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, there's a really unique dy- dynamic going on at this time. Herod, who is the, the ruler over this region, is absolutely opposing the arrival of a king. As a matter of fact, you're going to see in just a minute that Herod wants to carry out a massacre of children. He wants to murder everyone younger than two years of age because he's so threatened in his monarchy. So Herod is opposing the king. The priests are ignoring the king, and the priests know the scriptures. They know Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 says that Jesus will be born, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Even though they know it, they don't bother going to Bethlehem, which is only six miles away. I'm sorry, but if I knew that Jesus was in Williamston this morning, I'd be out of here, okay? I wouldn't be hanging around with you. As much as I love you, I'd be gone, and hopefully you would be too, because he's only six miles away. Well, they know this, but they don't bother going to check it out. Why? They don't even believe God's word. So this is really significant. At this period of time, messianic expectation is running really, really high, really high. You see it among King Herod. You see it among the Magi. You see it among those who are at the temple. They're expecting the arrival of the Messiah. Now, we're told this man in Jerusalem by the name of Simeon is is there. Uh, Extra biblical information says he's around 100 years of age, maybe as much as 113. He's very aged, but we don't know that because for sure it doesn't come from the Bible, but we are told this. This guy's righteous, and he's devout, and he's waiting for something specific. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. So what we have here is an Old Testament saint, a person who's alive before Jesus has died and was resurrected. He's an Old Testament saint as much as Noah is, and he's looking for the arrival of the Messiah. So we're told the consolation of Israel, and it's this word, and if you have a a legal background, you're really going to appreciate this word, paraclesis. Paraclesis is used in a judicial setting in which if you're in trouble with the law and you need an advocate, you need to call your attorney to back you up in court, you're calling your paraclesis, the one who brings comfort to you, who brings counsel to you. That's why the Holy Spirit is referred to as the paraclete, the one who is the comforter. So a paraclesis is, is a legal term. That's what he's looking for. Here's a common prayer in Israel at this period of time. May I live long enough to see the paraclesis of Israel. They prayed it daily wanting to see the arrival of the kingdom of God. And we're told, according to verse 25, the Holy Spirit is upon him. Verse 26 says this, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Now legend speaks of him as being really disturbed by an ancient prophecy, an ancient promise of God from the book of Isaiah. Now, last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 9. He was disturbed by Isaiah chapter 7, in which it says, A virgin will conceive 
Now that's familiar stuff to us because we grow up in America. We sing away in a manger all the time. We know about a virgin conceiving, but just put this in your mind. It's never happened before this moment in time. A virgin with child? How is that possible? You, you can see why he's confused and troubled over this. Even without legend saying, I totally understand that and get that. But we're told he came into the temple, meaning he wasn't already there. He's out in Jerusalem doing something. Whatever he does in town, he's doing something else, and God interrupts him. God interrupts him and says to him, Simeon, it's time. He's here. Stop what you're doing. Go to the temple. So we find him coming in. Verse 27 says, And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God. This incredibly touching scene here. Mary and Joseph once again playing a role in God's perfect eternal timing. They're carrying out for him the custom of the law. What is that? We just talked about that. They're paying the redemption price. They're putting out the, sh- the silver and-, and they're bringing the turtle dove. So they're carrying out what God asked them to do, the right of redemption. And in that moment, the Spirit guides Simeon into the room. He scoops up the baby and makes this proclamation that you're about to learn about. Now, if you understand the larger picture of what's going on here, it will have significant impact on how you celebrate Christmas this season. All your future Christmases, if you understand what Simeon understood here about what God is bringing about. So in verse 28, when it says, he took him into his arms, understand there is a weight resting on Simeon. It's a holy weight. He understands what God is up to. And the realization of what God is doing of unfolding his plan is made obvious to Simeon because he sees God's word and he believes God's word. So it's really affecting his actions, leaving behind whatever he's doing during the day. He's willing to put it aside and go be part of this. So what did God reveal to him? Well, deep within his praise, as you find in this passage, it says that he blessed God. That's very significant because he's about to break into praise here. So I have to construct this in my mind. Probably you're doing this right now, trying to visualize this setting. Here's what I see. This very aged man, I don't know if he's walking with a cane or not, but I see him in my mind entering the temple, scanning what must be hundreds of people, looking for what? An adult? A teenager? A boy? How does he know to pick up this child? Well, in order to understand what he knows, we have to look at prophecy. And so very quickly, I want to take you to a couple very ancient promises that God revealed that Simeon understood that you can understand and it will change the way you celebrate Look with me up on the screen. I'm going to take you to the very first prophecy in the Bible, and you're going to see it in the book of Genesis, Genesis 3.15. God's in the Garden of Eden speaking to Eve and speaking to Satan. In the same moment, God makes a prophecy. Genesis 3.15 says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, you might look at that and say, what? I don't see any prophecy in there. 
What is that talking about? That, this sounds like confused words. Understand, this very first prophecy in, occurs within the context of the fall of man. And when God says between your offspring and hers, you really need to focus in on that because he's using a specific word here. In the Hebrew language, it's the word zerah. And, and zerah is talking about your future posterity, ones who will come after you. You see this word in your notes this morning. You want to remember that, maybe even write it in your Bible among, uh, on that area where it says offspring. What this passage is making clear is the one that will be coming is from the descent of a woman, the genealogy of a woman, not from a man. Now, that should catch your attention immediately because in the Bible, every genealogy listed is always from the descent of a man. It talks about their national identity, their tribal identity, their legal rights as a man. But God himself says, this one, this one that's coming in the future is going to be traced through the line of a woman. There is something very, very different here. Something is going to take place in his future ancestry which will cause him to come into this world through the line of a woman, meaning no human father. Now, we can see that looking back on the situation, but this is a total mystery to them. And there was no further information given for for that situation for hundreds of years until you get to Isaiah Isaiah arrives on the scene, a prophet of God, who makes a prophecy in Isaiah 7, and it says a virgin will conceive. This is the very passage that Simeon was troubled by. Look with me at the passage, Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name God with us. That is amazing. So Simeon is putting the pieces together saying, this one that I've got to be looking for when I go in the room is going to be very, very young because she's still a virgin. And the baby that she's going to be holding, this child will be a son and it will be Emmanuel. There's something that doesn't happen every day. This is really consistent with the New Testament. When Paul wrote Galatians 4.4, he said that the one that came was part of the fulfillment of the ages. Look with me, Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Now, that might be a verse that you look at and say, well, of course, everybody's born of a woman. Everybody in this auditorium is born of a woman. Well, that's not what it's really talking about. We're not talking about physically being birthed. It's talking about the descent line coming through the line of a woman. This is consistent in the New Testament. Why? Because God made a promise. God made a promise, a prophecy, that he would destroy the destroyer. Now let this set with you for just a minute. 2014, how does this relate to my day? God in the garden could have ended it all right then. He could have dropped the hammer and said, fine, I'm done with you. You're going to disobey me? I want nothing more to do with you. But instead, God says, I've got a plan and my plan is as old as time. There will be one coming through the line of a woman, will be through the descent, the genealogy of a woman, who will crush your head, Satan, and will destroy you. So Satan would be crushed. So here's what we understand. All of the Old Testament prophecies keep pointing to this one. 
the one who comes with this ability to actually accomplish the monumental task of destroying death, of destroying the destroyer. See, God can afford to be very, very precise because he knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. So he is very precise about the things that will unfold. Here's three other pieces that I'll just move through real quickly that Simeon knew. First of all, he knew from Micah 5.2, the one that was coming was going to be born in Bethlehem. Ancient prophecy, several hundred years before Jesus. It says this, As for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Simeon knew that. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us when we come to the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 and we see that Joseph and Mary show up in the city of David, the city of Joseph's ancestry, because God said it was going to be that way. Here's another one, that when Messiah comes, he will be in the line of the tribe of Judah. Judah was a person, a a real individual who lived. He was the son of Jacob. So Scripture says this all the way back in Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Anybody that was here last week remember what Shiloh is when we studied that? What do you remember? Tranquilizer, tranquility, tranquility, that's right. Until the tranquilizer comes, the one who brings peace. That's the word Shiloh there. So what do we find in the book of Hebrews? Hebrews 7.14 says, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Look at this last one. That there would be a massacre of children. God knew about this egomaniac King Herod. Hundreds and hundreds of years before King Herod was born, God knew that there would be a destruction of children because this guy is a maniac. Look with me at the prophecy, Jeremiah 31.5. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, which is Bethlehem, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. What do we know from the Christmas story? Matthew 2, Herod saw that he had been tricked. It says this, Matthew 2, 16, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem. See, God can afford to be very, very precise because he knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. So when he says to you, I'm going to be your wonderful counselor, your mighty God, your Prince of Peace, your everlasting Father. He can say that because he knows the end from the beginning. He can say it with authority. So we move back into the story here to to land this plane. In verse 29, Simeon begins speaking. And this is what he says. And he said, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. Let this next phrase really register with you. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. Now there's this beautiful tradition that's been handed down to us that says that Mary memorized what she heard Simeon say, and that she repeated it to Luke, and Luke wrote it down in his words. And for several hundred years, the early church, from the time Jesus was resurrected until about 300 A.D., the early church turned that into a hymn, and they would sing it on a regular basis that God had brought a light 
of revelation to the Gentiles, that he had brought salvation. In Latin, it's known as the Nunic Dinamitus, and it's something that's still sung today in many Latin-speaking churches. So this phrase that Simeon uses here, according to your word, harkens back to verse 26. If you got your Bible open, you might just want to draw a line between 26 and 29 because when he says, according to your word, you should be thinking of what had been revealed to him. We were told in verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. That's linked to according to your word. This is profound. He sees things in God's word that relate to his own generation. 1 AD, and yet at the same time, It's pregnant with expectation looking forward to 2014. He not only sees his generation, he sees our generation. He can see what God is doing, the whole picture all at once. See, it's really unusual for a Jew, a devout, righteous man, to scoop up a child and begin talking about the Gentiles in the temple, to be praising God for something that hasn't happened yet. So you look at these phrases and you see in verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared in the presence of all your peoples, meaning God's got a plan. Verse 32, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. In case you didn't know it, if you're not a Jew this morning, you're a Gentile, okay? Anybody who's not born Jewish is a Gentile. It's not a derogatory term. It's just a phrase for non-Jews. So that's you, Here's what he sees in this moment. He sees God's plan being carried out to the entire world that everyone can be saved. No wonder when the angels show up in Luke chapter 2 and they say to the shepherd, we have good news of great joy, which will be for all people, not just for the Jews, it's for the entire globe. So Simeon's putting these pieces together because he knows what the prophet Isaiah wrote that those who are not God followers are lost in darkness. As a matter of fact, it speaks specifically that those who are outside God's circle are shrouded in such a degree, it's like a thick mist surrounds them. But Isaiah wrote that when the promised one comes, he's going to remove that thickness, that darkness. Look with me, Isaiah 25, 7. He will swallow up the covering which is over all the people's even the veil which is stretched over all nations. See, the covering is being taken away. So no wonder Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 3.16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. No longer do the people live in darkness, for they've seen a great light. See, this old man knows much about God's plans. No wonder, verse 28 says, then he took him up into his arms and began praising God and celebrating. Why? Because he can do what you can do today. He sees God's word and he believes God's word. And so he's acting on it. It's actually affecting his day. So deep in his praise is this great significance. He's saying, Yahashua has come, and he's come for the salvation of the entire world. No wonder verse 33 ends the way it does. And his mom and dad were blown away. Well, that's according to Mark Kring, but let's see the way the Bible says it. Verse 33, and his father and mother were thumadzo, were amazed 
at the things which were being said about him. Thumazo means to marvel again and again and again and again. Can't believe what he's saying. So Mary's already heard the authentication of who Jesus would be from Gabriel the angel. Joseph has already had a visit from an angel, direct communication with God. Mary and Joseph together have heard from the shepherds what they experienced in the field. Why are they so shocked at this pronouncement? First time. First time that they've been together to hear about the destiny of Jesus. See, they've been told who he would be, what he is, but they've never comprehended the scope that the entire planet would be saved through Jesus. Uh, We're not going to keep going. We're going to stop, but here's what you're going to see next week when we come back to this passage. Simeon stops praising God, and he breaks into prophecy, and he begins talking about our generation. He begins talking about future people. Things like this, verse 34, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many. Verse 35, to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We said in the beginning, prophecy really reveals God's purposes. This child is barely one month old, and already we're being told he is the dividing line. He is the dividing line throughout all time. That's why Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. It's very black and white. You're either a believer or a non-believer. If you don't think so, go into a Christmas party this morning or this afternoon or later this week and just bring up the Jesus conversation. Maybe you're standing in the midst of a social circle and just throw this out there when the room gets quiet and say, so who do you guys think Jesus is? Grenade in the room, right? If you don't think he's the dividing line, just try that. People will either move away from you or want to argue with you, or perhaps if it's a fellow believer, engage with you in conversation. See, he is the dividing line for the rise and the fall of many that the hearts of man might be revealed. We leave here this morning asking ourselves this question. Other than this uniqueness of prophecy and God's promises, what have we learned from this teaching? What can we take with us out the door? Well, here's number one. God's timing is always perfect. Just when you think you've waited as long as you can possibly wait, God says, I got this in control. You you saw that in the story this morning. Number two, God's promises will always be fulfilled because he can't lie, church. Amen? Can't lie. Number three, God can't afford to be very precise because he knows the end from the beginning. Number four, God has a plan, and it includes you. Is that not cool? God's got a plan, and it's not just for a certain group of people. It's not just for the Jews in Israel. It's for everyone. He's got a plan, and it includes you. So let me take this one step further, and then I'm going to let you go. What is required of you and I to have a heart that's really tuned in to God's activities, like Simeon? Because that's what I come away from this story with, like, Man, how can I get to the point in my walk with God where I will respond to God like Simeon did? First of all, you have to look at Simeon's story and say, this guy is remarkable because he's not only watching for God activity, he's responsive. Whatever he was doing out in Jerusalem at that time, stopped. 
He responded to what God was showing him to do. See, he never knew at the beginning of that day what he'd be facing. He enters the temple and finds God's got his greatest moment of his life waiting for him. So what do you do when you believe God is working his purposes in your life? Well, first of all, you have to do what Michael was talking about earlier. You've got to slow down to be in the place where you can actually watch God activity. And then, it's going to sound really simple, respond. Now, it sounds simple, but it's not. Because I'm like you. I am so capable of making excuses of all the things that I want to do in the midst of my week. I got a plan for every day. Things that I want to do, just like you do. So listening and watching for God's activity and then responding. See, when God speaks, when God leads in your life, that is the moment you respond. So right now you're probably asking this question, well, I've never heard God speak. Or or how do I know it's God speaking? Here's a clue. When he causes you to do things that are not intuitive to you. Meaning, I've got lots of things I would like to do, my own agenda, and if God interrupts that by presenting an opportunity in front of me, if it's consistent with his character and his nature, I can usually say, yeah, that's probably God tapping on my shoulder, but I really want to go do this, God. But I want you to do this. See, he's the master, I'm the servant. We've got to respond to his lead. So he invites us to join him in his work. Three days ago, I went to see a man who's got like three days to live. He's 48 years old. I went to visit with him at hospice at St. Lawrence facility in Lansing. And he was told four weeks ago that he's got pancreatic cancer. And he doesn't have any time left to live. So for the last four weeks, he's been trying to get his affairs in order. God kept moving on my heart to go see him, and I kept finding other things to go do. But Friday morning, I found my way on the way down to St. Lawrence Hospital, and after visiting with him, I got a note back from his wife, which she said, we so much needed to hear that. Thank you for helping him understand salvation and affirming him in his faith. You know what? The guy's going to step into eternity probably today. And he needed to hear that. Could I have gone off to wash my car or change my oil? Absolutely. But when God pushes you and you know it's probably God doing it, that's the moment you respond. Not trying to pat myself on the back because believe me, there's been many times when I've just kind of said, no, I got this thing to do over here, God. So you listen, you respond. That's how simple it is to be kind of like what Simeon did here this morning. Let me pray for us, because I I know that that's not an easy thing to do, especially with how busy Christmas is. So let's pray for each other. Would you do that? Join me in this. Father, I ask that you would allow us to be in that place that Michael spoke of earlier about slowing our hearts down so that we can allow some space in our life to see your activity and that you, you would move in the life of each of us who called Jesus our Savior to respond to you, to engage in conversations about you, and to be bold enough to exalt you like Simeon did. Father, that as Christ followers, we would be willing to stand up among a wicked and perverse generation and say, God's got a plan 
Father, I pray that for us as a church. I, I believe we're praying that for each other right now in this room, that you would strengthen us in the midst of our week, that we would walk boldly before you, and that we would be quick to give you glory and honor and praise because you're worth it, Father. You are our mighty God. You are our Prince of Peace. You are our wonderful Counselor. And you are our everlasting Father. Take us, Father. Take us from this place with your blessing upon us. In Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen.